0: I think being a lawyer who leads requires first managing your own mind before you lead others. When you give advice that you're not aligned with, that you're not actually doing, when you're out of integrity, people can feel it. It's important to actually take a step back and figure out what type of leader you want to be before you start leading others.
1: Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead, a podcast that challenges the notion that the law lags behind. I'm your host, Seagal Barnes. Each week, I invite a lawyer who's making powerful changes through extraordinary leadership. In each episode, we'll travel through another lawyer's life, identify what they do best, and then devise how to apply these concepts to your own world. So let's get to it. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead. I'm your host, Seagal Barnes. Our guest today is a lawyer who is the partner and chief of diversity inclusion at Chasen, Lamparello, Mallon, and Capuzzo in New Jersey. She is also a certified life coach and the founder of The Spiritual Litigator, where she helps women and minority lawyers make partner without burning out. Please welcome our next lawyer who leads, Shane Scott. Shane, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm a huge fan. I actually watched Shane's program on Lawline, and it was amazing on imposter syndrome. And then I started to dig deeper and learn all about the spiritual litigator. Before we get into that, though, would you mind sharing a little bit about what brought you to the work that you're doing today?
0: Sure. So I've been practicing for 10 years now. The first few years of practice, I had some trouble dealing with the stress and anxiety, and at the time, didn't realize that this was something that's completely normal for lawyers to deal with. I had a complex employment case. So I do mostly employment litigation. And it was a lot of documents, a lot of motions from the adversary. I wasn't winning any of the motions. I decided that the judge hated me, that the adversary hated me, everybody must hate me. And I was working just insane amount, like through weekends. So I think I worked a total of maybe 14 days nonstop, no break, no anything. So one day I was sitting in the office after essentially doing a a full 14 days with no rest. And I looked out at the highway and thought to myself, I'd rather just walk out into route three than to do any more of this. It scared me. So I decided to take that day and just go home As soon as I got home and got in bed, the room started spinning and I had no idea what was going on. I was actually very terrified. As I got up, I started throwing up and I couldn't stop. So I'm sorry if you're eating lunch right now. I called a friend who took me to urgent care. They tried to give me anti-nausea shots. I could not hold anything down. They said, you've been throwing up so much you need to go to the ER. So I went to the ER. At this point, I couldn't walk at all. I had nothing left, and I had to be like wheeled in in a wheelchair. And they started asking me all these questions: Have you been drinking? Are you on drugs? No. The answers are no. And then they finally said, Have you been stressed out? And I said, Yes. So they put me in an IV. They pretty much revived me from the state that I was in. And they kept telling me that, look, you have severe vertigo right now, and the only cause that makes sense is that you're stressed out. That's the only thing. You're not on any illicit substances that could have caused this. And so I'm still not understanding it because I have an IV in my left arm and I like with my right hand, I'm calling to cover court the next day. Like I'm listening halfway, but then I'm still not okay. I'm not dying today. So somebody needs to cover court tomorrow. Wow. So when I finally processed it and I was out of work for a week because the vertigo was so severe that I could not see, like my vision was so blurry, I couldn't even do work remotely because I was like, I still got to work. No. When your body tells you it's time, it's time. From there, I started looking up, what do stressed out lawyers do? What are the solutions? I Googled and they said, leave, get out, save yourself. Don't be a lawyer anymore. And I said, no, that's not the option. That's where I found mindfulness and I started meditating and doing yoga and journaling. And that's when I finally realized, oh, it was my thoughts the whole time. So that's what got me to the spiritual litigator. That
1: was the journey that got me to start the blog. And that's where I've been ever since. That's an incredible story. And I just want to thank you for your vulnerability and for sharing this story. I think it's really important for us to normalize that this happens to a lot of us. Believe it or not, I can actually relate. Something similar happened to me about a year ago. It was a seizure. I also went through the same situation where I was in the ambulance calling work at two o'clock in the morning, being like, oh, or texting rather. And I was like, I can't come in. That was the next thing in my mind as I was in an ambulance to the hospital and also stress induced the whole deal. I'd love to ask you if you could just tell me How long between when the hospitalization happened and when you actually came to the realization, I need to start looking for alternatives to my lifestyle. How long was that process? So I resisted it
0: completely the first couple of days. I was was like, that can't be the reason. There must be something else. And then finally I accepted it. And as I was still trying to work, but could not see, it was like, literally my body was like, stop it. Stop it. Once your body Wants to send you a message that you continue to ignore, it will shut you down. Mm-hmm. And it had to literally make my vision so that I could not work for me to actually listen. And so then I said, okay, maybe you're right. Maybe the doctors are right. Maybe this is stress. And that's when I started the Google adventure. Okay, what are the alternatives? Because I'm not leaving. Hmm. And that was my whole mindset the whole time was we're going to have to figure something out because I'm not going to stop being a lawyer. This is not an option for me. And and I want to be really careful with that because I don't want anybody to feel like they have to make that same decision if they are in a place of burnout, because you have to do whatever works for you. For me, my intention was to stay. Tell me what I need to do to manage this and stay and not end up in the ER
1: again. Absolutely. When I first started practicing law, I felt like what is wrong with me? I I clearly am not a fit for the legal industry. Like maybe I wasn't supposed to be a lawyer. Maybe I'm not cut out for it. You didn't think that way. You were like, no, I'm supposed to be a lawyer and I'm going to figure out a way to do that. I would love to dig there into your frame of mind. How were you able to approach it in that way?
0: So I was one of those weird people that always knew I wanted to be a lawyer, so I was voted most likely to be a lawyer in eighth grade. (laughs) So this was something that I just knew. And then after law school, graduating into the back end of the financial crisis where there were still no legal jobs, I grew up in Michigan and I went to school in Michigan. And the place that I was working with, that I had been a law clerk with, only hired two out of their eight summer associates. And so I was like, I'm still going to be a lawyer. So I always had that mindset. You're not going to tell me I can't be a lawyer. So I sent out 200 job applications to New Jersey where I didn't know anybody. I'd never been there before. And then I ended up getting two interviews and one job offer from that. So I've always been like, we're going to do this lawyer thing. I'm not sure how, but we're going to do this thing and we'll just keep working on it until we get there. So that was the same mindset I had when I burned out. It was like, okay, there's a solution here that I'm going to find. And it took me a little bit to get there. I wish I hadn't had to go in the ER, but without it, I don't think I would have found the tools that I have now.
1: What do you think informed your ability to approach things by saying there's a solution versus this is my sign to leave?
0: I think it comes from my parents, really. My dad was an HR professional. He was actually personnel director for the city of Ann Arbor for several years. And then my mom, she taught as a um, professor for 45 years. So they were both long term employees and they were both very much like, figure it out from a compassionate place. You can either have stress at McDonald's or you can have stress at a law firm. You're going to be dealing with humans one way or the other. So make a decision and go for it. So, That was really what was in the back
1: of my head where it's, we're not going to say we're going to stop, but like, how do we keep going? So after the hospitalization, you start Googling, you start looking into things. What was your next step after you started to realize, okay, there's no resources here? What was your next step there?
0: Yeah. So I finally found out of all the Googling that was not negative. Some of it said, hey, mindfulness and meditation. And I think that's where I was like, oh, okay. Once I started doing these things, I started feeling better. It wasn't an overnight thing, but it was just like, if you go from maybe some lawyers may have this experience where you go from waking up and like hardly being able to get out of bed and then waking up and being like, Oh, okay, we don't feel terrible today. This is nice. And I also want to say that I got a therapist, too. So Mm -hmm. it wasn't just meditation and go like I needed a therapist at the time. And I think that there should be less stigma about that. I have a therapist and a life coach, I have no problem saying that. And so we started out, let's get Shane out of bed. And then it was like, how do we maintain this? And that's where the mindfulness came in. After that week, then, okay, let's find a therapist, let's find mindfulness techniques, find different YouTube channels. And then it was from there started to grow to maybe I need to teach people this because I can't be the only person.
1: Teaching is the best form of learning. We continue to learn as we teach others. So tell me, when did the spiritual litigator actually become an official thing?
0: So I burned out in January of 2016. And then I think I got the LLC like a month later. Wow. I was ready to go. Yeah, I, I was like, I was definitely ready to go. got the LLC and I started the website in its infancy. And it was just really just blogging about my experiences and maybe this can help. And then it started evolving throughout the years because it wasn't just meditating or doing yoga, it was like there's something missing. And that's where I found the life coaching process of, wait, you got to work on your thinking also, because you can just sit and breathe all day. But if you're not changing your thinking, nothing's going to change.
1: You've created a model at Spiritual Litigator that really helps others who are going through the same thing. Can you give us a sneak peek into what that looks like?
0: Yeah. So like I said, struggling with, okay, I'm meditating, I'm doing yoga, but people are still annoying me. And I'm still really (laughs) frustrated when I lose motions. And I'm still really triggered by a, a rude email. So what's the problem? And then I found the life coach school and the model comes from the creator of the life coach school. Brooke Castillo, and it just talks about how there's all these circumstances in your life that you have zero control over, the judge, clients, adversaries, your boss, all these things you have zero control over. And then what creates our experience is what we think about them. And then we have feelings because of those thoughts. And then we take actions and then we have the results in our lives. So you could take the same paragraph of an email from an adversary and have the thought, oh my gosh, this person's the worst. Why are they doing this? They must think that they can get away with this. Or you can think, I'm going to reply in 24 hours because I don't reply to emails like this for 24 hours. And there's no extra drama from that thinking of just, okay, I'll worry about this later. What I found was this was the key. The model was really the key that helped me deal with everything that I thought was a problem in the practice of law that really was just routine practice of law
1: circumstances. But I have to stop you there because that sounds awesome. And I'm like, how do I do that, though? So I I get a really rude email. I'm like all riled up ready to respond to that email like right now. You're in a place where you're like, no, you know what? I'm going to give it 24 hours because this doesn't deserve that. How do you get to that point? First, you have to actually
0: break down what you're thinking in that moment. So if your thought is, I have to respond, well, why? Ask yourself why until you get down to what it really comes down to. I have to respond. Why? Because I have to. Why? Because if I don't, they're going to file a motion. So what? If they file the motion, then I'm a bad lawyer. That's not true. So once you go down to the root of the thought and you're like, okay, let them file a motion. We're lawyers. We do motions. This is not a problem. (laughs) From there, once you get your thinking together, then you're like, okay, I'm going to think differently about this. I'm going to think this does not require an immediate response. And once you do that, all that anxiety like really drained from your body. like You can literally feel it. And then from that, you're changing your action. You're like, my rule is not to respond to rude emails for 24 hours, unless it is emergent. Your brain will lie to you about what's emergent, but when you really look at it, maybe 1% of the emails you get in a day are emergent. Mm, Yeah. Unless it says the judge needs something, there's a temporary restraining order we have to respond to. If it's something that the managing partner needs, absolutely. But that's that 1%. Like The rest of those things can wait until tomorrow, and you can actually put it in your calendar first thing in the morning so you get it out of the
1: way. How do you not let it fester until the next day when you address it? I, I know you say go through the thinking. So do you walk away? Do you actually like physically walk away? Or do you like, what do you do? I'm just very curious because I clearly need to do this more. So I'm like, please tell me. And I know our listeners probably are going through this as well.
0: I love this question. It it, it seems like something that's just happening to you. Like the email is like attacking you from the computer. But that's where it comes down to the thinking that you're actually engaging in. So like you first have to catch yourself and say, hey, what am I thinking about this? And then what feeling is this thinking creating? So if you're thinking this person is such a jerk, this person is so disrespectful, like you feel that. And that's where the fester comes from. And really, sometimes you got to sit with it and just be like, deep breath and just like breathe into it and be like, this is how I feel right now. And I'm saying like, don't take all day thinking about it. (laughs) I'm saying like, literally set a timer for five minutes and just sit with it. And some people will say, Shane, I'm not going to do that. But what are you going to do instead? You're going to fester and it's going to mess up the rest of your day. All the other things that you have to get done, you're going to keep going back to the email, keep going back to the email. But if you sit with it and then you say, that's okay. People are allowed to write whatever they want to write. They can be whoever they want to be. And once you take a step back and recognize it has nothing to do with you, you really free yourself from it. Hmm. And so I fester less because I know that's their problem and not mine. Cause I've had people actually write like super rude email and then five minutes later, please respond. No. <laughs> <laughs> Cause they're trying they're they are having their own negative emotion and they're trying to pull you in so they can justify it. But if I'm not playing with them, if I'm not cooperating with it, they have to take that negativity with them like somewhere else. They're gonna have to process that somewhere else. So they're festering somewhere else.
1: Well, I've moved on. I love this idea of giving yourself a moment to feel the feeling a lot of that festering is me trying to fight the feeling (laughs) instead of actually just letting myself feel the feeling and then letting it go away yeah this idea of just leaning into it whether that's a minute or five minutes or whatever the case may be and then saying okay you gave yourself that
0: yeah and even on small things like I've had where you make a dreaded mistake or it feels like you're gonna die like you send an email without the attachment and you're like that's the end they're gonna fire me this is it but like Sometimes when I've done that, it's, okay, take a deep breath, resend it with the attachment, and then just sit with how terrible you feel for five minutes. And then like it goes and you feel so much better because nine times out of 10, they haven't even noticed that you forgot to do the attachment because they haven't even looked at their emails because
1: they have better boundaries around time. (laughs) (laughs) It's so true, though. You're so right. Okay. So let's bring this all together. You're a partner at a law firm. Huge achievement. A lot of future leaders are trying to get to that place. Tell me, how has all of this work helped you get to where you are today? Talk to me about that journey. The interesting thing about the practice of law is it's like a pie-eating contest
0: where the prize is more pie. As you do more work, you just get more of the pie. You get more work. So if I burned out at four years, if you're supposed to make partner at around the eight year mark, I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to have a lot more work in four years. So we're going to have to figure this out. So the more work that I did with mindfulness and with self-coaching, the more I recognized that the workload could not create my stress. It was the way I was thinking about it, processing it, the way that I wasn't scheduling anything and that I was just flying off the seat of my pants. And it just gave me the tools to be more intentional about my calendar, more intentional about my workload and to coach myself on the cases that stressed myself out, but at the same time focusing on the ones that I really loved and really being in a place of gratitude for the cases that I loved. I know sometimes when people hear gratitude, they're like, oh, it's a little corny, but it works. And you have millions of things in your day to feel terrible about. And then you also have millions of things in your day that you can feel good about. And it's really an intentional choice that I try to make every day to be like, okay, let's try our best to focus on the things that are working. That doesn't mean I don't have bad days. I certainly do. But it's okay. I can focus on this case that I really don't like because you're never going to escape those. Or I can focus on the one that I'm really excited about. And that's what I try to do.
1: I think that's wonderful. And I think it requires, like you said, intentionality to say, okay, what do I want my experience to be? I can choose to have my experience focus on all the negative things, or I can choose to say, what am I grateful for? And I get to choose what that world looks like for me every single day. I love that. So- Now you're a partner, you have teams, you have other lawyers looking up to you. How do you incorporate a lot of this mindset and this approach to leading others in your firm?
0: That was probably the hardest part because for a while I didn't have imposter syndrome because I was like, I finally have figured something out. And then I started being the adult in the room and then being like, oh, you're asking me because I'm in charge. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't like that because I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. Why are you asking me? It So I think being a leader in a law firm, it, it takes some humility and it also takes some coaching yourself to recognize that you can do this. You're there to teach and you're there to counsel and to point them in the right direction and maybe do it in a way that works for you that maybe wasn't done for you. And I don't mean that in a negative way. It's just that... I think we all have to manage our time and then make that time to mentor the next generation. And some of that time is going to be unbillable. Mm. So you're going to have to put that time aside if you choose to. Some people will choose to be a partner in a law firm and not really mentor that much. And that's their style. But I'm like daily trying to set time aside to call someone and say, Hey, let's talk about this. It's not easy. But I do try to say, we're going to talk about this memo. We're going to talk about this assignment and really just trying to give them tips that maybe were not available to me. Not necessarily because someone chose not to teach it, but we really, as leaders forget, we take for granted the knowledge that we have and just assume everybody knows how to do things.
1: That is so true. At least for me, sometimes I'm like, oh, yeah, I've learned all these different ways to cope or to lead or to do a certain project. And then all of a sudden, I'm the adult in the room and I'm like, wait a minute, is this even right? Is this even going to work for other people? Was I like fooling myself the whole time? But really, we have to be more confident in the fact that we've learned along the way and that we can share these things, that they're not just things we should take for granted or things that we should question because they've helped us come to where we are. Yeah, and
0: it's about showing up imperfectly because I think one of the greatest things that I learned after burning out was you can show up imperfectly as an associate and then now as a leader, I can show up imperfectly and I can actually say, hey, I made a mistake here and you see it. I'm not going to hide it. I'll tell you a story and I posted about it on Instagram maybe a few weeks ago when I was a um, summer associate at at a law firm, not the same law firm, different law firm. We had a Ask the Managing Partners night. And I asked, can you tell me about a mistake that you made that you overcame or learned from? he just went to the next question he didn't even address it he no was way. like no i'm not going to answer that and it that, that still sticks with me to this day it's been like what 12 years since i summered there i don't know like the the pursuit of perfection just makes people make more mistakes i miscalendared a status conference and we get this notice from the court saying defense counsel failed to appear and i see that my associate's on the notice and i called her immediately and said yep this happens And you make a mistake and it's okay. Try your best not to make it twice. I know exactly what went wrong. I know exactly why I miscalendared it. And here it is. I'm not going to pretend this didn't happen. But I think pretending mistakes don't happen and going for A plus all the time is just not realistic. And that's where we really burn out. So tell me about a mistake
1: that you've made. Yeah, the miscalendaring one. I got (laughs) that that one all the way. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) (gasps) Yep. <gasps> All right. Then on that point, are you able to identify other people that are potentially going down the same path that you were before? And are you going out of your way to help those people particularly?
0: Oh, yeah. I see a lot of great young talent, young lawyers that are doing really great work. You see their excitement and it mirrors what you felt 10 years ago. I was so excited to just sign my name on a letter. I just remember the partner at the time saying, you can come to court with me. And I was like, oh, do I get to stand up and say the firm's name? And she was like, what is wrong with this child? Like, <laughs> I was super excited. And some of that is still there. But it's after 10 years, it gets diminished. It doesn't matter how mindful you are. This is a tough profession. And so to see that like excitement on their faces and to see that they really want to improve and really want to learn it is really like renews that some of what you lost.
1: Absolutely. I remember those times. I was so excited when I would go to the bench and I would say the firm's name and I would say my name and I would be called counsel. It was like huge for me, huge. So what systems have you put in place to help perhaps create a different culture than the culture that you were in when you were originally going through that burnout?
0: Yeah. And I want to be clear that the culture wasn't a firm problem. Okay. The billable hours are what they are, but that wasn't was what was causing it. It was really my inability to manage the caseload without freaking out, taking everything personally that was happening with the client or with the judge or with the adversary. But I will say that the firm was not the problem, thankfully. And that's why I'm still there. They were super supportive when I burned out. There was no like, where are you? When are you coming back? I need a doctor's note. There was none of that. It was very much take whatever time you need. Oh my gosh. Like they were so concerned for me. So that was, number one, a good thing. We have a really good open door policy at the firm where we tell people like, please feel free. If you are in a place where you are having a hard time, please feel free to come and talk to us. Like we're always available and we're always here to listen and we want to help as much as possible. We don't hide the ball here. We're going to tell you, Hey, make sure you look in this statute. Make sure you look in that book there is
1: no judgment. There is no like no jerks here. And Mm. that's, I think, a really good thing. In addition to being a partner, you were also the chief of diversity and inclusion at the firm. Can you tell me about your work doing that?
0: Yeah. And it's a new position. So we're still working on that. But one thing that we really want to focus on is creating a pipeline for attorneys of color to come through the firm. I think it's one thing to hire lateral or hire someone, but it's another thing to actually retain someone. So there's the hiring and then there's retention. And that's where firms really scratch their head around. But they're not putting systems in the place that they can actually retain minority talent. They're not training people. They're not making sure that people have an understanding that certain comments are not acceptable. And been working with the local law schools to try to get people in for summer internships. It's a slower process, but it's a sustainable process. And that's really what I'm looking at is if somebody clerks with us over the summer and then they go and they clerk for a judge and they come back, they're already going to be hitting the ground running when they start here and know the firm culture, and know how to interact with lawyers. It's like they, we call these things soft skills, but they're generally the most important skills you can ever learn. So I don't know why they're called soft because they're really important.
1: Let's decide today to just get rid of soft skills yes. as a term. They're just Absolutely. skills they are the most important. So talk a little bit about the things that you're thinking as it relates to the retention side of things. You talked about training. Can you talk more about the things that you're thinking about from a retention perspective?
0: Yeah. And so I've done a lot of research on why firms can't retain minority talent. A lot of that comes from the work distribution, allowing inappropriate comments from Partners or from clients. And so it really comes down to if you bring somebody in, whether they're an intern or an associate, making sure we are invested in every single associate's success paying attention to work distribution, making sure that they're not just getting work from the minority partner, making sure that they're getting work from everyone, that they're not feeling isolated and that they're given good feedback. The hardest thing as an associate, it doesn't matter what your background is, figuring out am I doing this right? When I was an associate, I used to think, can't somebody just tell me if I did a good job or a bad job? But now that I'm a partner, I will literally get an assignment, think, oh, this is amazing. This is exactly what I needed. And then just never tell them. Mm. And, <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I get it now. So, really, the feedback has always been you're getting more work. So, that's your feedback, but being more intentional about, hey, we're going to set time aside to talk to people. And that is a really hard thing to do but we've been really trying to implement that more.
1: What does that look like? Is that like a weekly thing, a monthly thing, a quarterly thing? What do those rhythms look like? In a perfect world, there would be like a set time, but I think it's more organic at this
0: point. So maybe it'll be a series of assignments and then saying, hey, let's set a half hour aside on a Friday, or can we sit at lunch and go over this? And it depends on what the assignment was. You're going to need an hour if you're going through a 40 page summary judgment. But if you're going through three page memo, you just need a few minutes to discuss it. And it's really tough because you have your own workload and you're trying to manage that and they have their own workload. So they're trying to manage that too. So just finding that middle ground, but actually being intentional about it and telling them, hey, this is coming. We're going to set some time aside. And sometimes they will remind you, which is a good thing. It's always okay to delicately remind the person, like, were we going to talk about this? Oh, yes, I've not forgotten.
1: Absolutely. And the fact that they feel okay being able to say that to you and to other members of the firm actually speaks volumes about all of you, because not everyone feels safe gently reminding someone. So any other kind of approaches that you've been thinking about?
0: Yeah, I think right now it's just really in its infancy, seeing how this first classes this summer and how we implement things and what we can learn. And then expanding from there is really what we're going to do. I wish we could just solve diversity and inclusion issues all over the place by just saying, here's the magic button. But I think it's really getting people in and then getting the information and and seeing what works and what doesn't work.
1: Absolutely. So I'm excited to see what more comes from the firm. Tell me a little bit about your work at the spiritual litigator. I know that you have two different parts. You have the coaching, and then you also have some trainings as well. Yeah, so it has
0: evolved through the years. A lot of the trainings and seminars have just been very organic, where it's like somebody has reached out, like Lawline reached mm-hmm. out, and I was really excited about that. I've also done you know trainings through other companies, and that's always been fun but the spiritual litigator is really focused on helping women attorneys make partner without burning out. The statistics are not great for women and especially not for women of color. And so I think as of 2020, 15% of associates were women of color, 4% of partners were women of color, less than 1% were black women. So it's really teaching women who have been socialized in a society that can be patriarchal and women of color who have been socialized in a patriarchal and unfortunately, in some places, a racist society, mm-hmm. and they're in a workplace that was not systemically built for their success. How do you handle the imposter syndrome and the, the self-doubt that comes for all attorneys, but it specifically affects women differently because of these added layers, really trying to help them learn that, look, Nothing's wrong with you because someone told you that you couldn't sit in the front row because they thought that you were the client. Nothing is wrong with you if you are feeling even more self-doubt about yourself because you think you have to work twice as hard to get respect. This is what you've been socialized with, and the world is what it is, so now what? Let's look at what your biggest challenges are as a lawyer and let's change your thinking around that without saying that your thinking is invalid because it's not invalid. These systems exist, but now what? That's Mm -hmm. really what I focus on.
1: I think that's so important saying your thinking is valid. It's okay to feel this way. It's okay to think this way. And let's approach from that place versus where I know a lot of the times I'm like, oh, I can't believe I think this way. What's wrong with me? So I think it's really important to have somebody on your side that's really thinking through those things and validating or having those outside resources to help you through those moments it's great so I'm gonna do some rapid fire questions are you ready yes okay if there was just one thing that you can improve about the legal industry what would it be
0: legitimate belief
1: in the importance of
0: mental health of attorneys. So not the thing that we do whenever there's something tragic that happens where we post things and we tell people, hey, if you ever need anything, and not to say that there's anything wrong with that, but whenever there's a famous suicide or something like that, people start posting things and then it starts to fade away. I just think it's important to obviously have a balance because yes, you're running a business, but having the compassion and actually legitimately believing in the importance of mental health in l- law firms can really make a difference. So if people know that they are valued and that if they do need time, that they're not going to be thrown to the curb, then I think that's really important.
1: I love that. You're right. There is a, a sense of short-term reactions, right? I will help you. I'll get you out of this right in the moment. But there's more work that can be done as far as long-term solutions and sustainability around mental health. I think it's really important. What does it mean to be a lawyer who leads? I think being a lawyer who leads requires first
0: managing your own mind before you lead others. When you give advice that you're not aligned with, that you're not actually doing, when you're out of integrity, people can feel it it's important to actually take a step back and figure out what type of leader you want to be before you start leading
1: others. I think that's so important, especially because a lot of lawyers are put in leadership, not understanding what that even means. You've been doing a really good job at this current role that you're doing. So therefore, let's just put you in a leadership role now. And you're right, because of the impact that you're having on other people to take a moment and ask yourself, what kind of leader do I want to be? What does that look like? how do I manage myself? That is so powerful. I love that. What is something that you do for self-care? So I actually have a Google doc
0: called when's the last time that you dot 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 question mark. It's a chart of all the things that I generally do that make me feel better. And then I keep track of when I've done those things. I look at it when I'm feeling terrible and I'm like, okay, when's the last time we read a book? When is the last time that we got a pedicure? When's the last time that we slept in on a Saturday? These little small things, that's something that I try to look at every couple weeks. The things that I do daily, meditate no matter what, even if it's five minutes. And it's not super complicated. It's just either setting a timer and breathing, or it's the insight timer, which is free, or meditationoasis.com. That's what got me started on meditation and then I journal every single day. And I've been journaling since I was nine years old, so it's pretty intuitive for me. But getting stuff out of your brain and onto paper makes such a difference because you are believing everything you're thinking and that's why you're so emotionally upset and frustrated and this person's a jerk and this case is the worst and all that. But you get it on paper, you're like, ah, it's, it's okay. Well, this is all right. So meditation and, and journaling are the two things that are like daily for me. And then the
1: other things I have on a list to keep track of. I feel very lucky right now because I feel like I'm just getting all of this really great practical tips from you. (laughs) Like off the bat, I'm like, I'm already going to be creating this Excel sheet. I'm already going to start meditating more. I do meditate a little bit, but not as much as I should. And the journaling is so key. I agree. So one last thing, what is a piece of practical advice to our listeners who are looking to follow your lead today? The first thing
0: is to recognize that You are not alone. I don't mean that in a cheesy way, but one of the main reasons that I burned out is because I convinced myself that I was the only person who was experiencing this, that I should have figured it out by now, that I'm totally getting fired, but you're not alone. There's nothing wrong with having those thoughts. It's very normal. I think of it like a barking dog in a neighborhood. You don't like the barking dog in the neighborhood, but you can either be really upset about that barking dog or you can just be like, I'm going to keep myself busy with other things so I don't even notice the barking dog. Mm. So eventually, like you notice it less and it gets quieter. I guess that's the way I think about it. You're always going to have self-doubt because that's just a human brain. And it's totally fine to have a human brain. Don't beat yourself up for having it. I hope that answers the question.
1: Yeah. I just want to say, Shane, thank you so much for being here. This has been so enlightening. It's been so inspiring. And I really appreciate you sharing your story with us. If someone wanted to connect with you online, what is the best way to do that?
0: Sure. You can find me on litigator.com, or you can find me on Instagram or Facebook, Spiritual Litigator. You can always connect with me on LinkedIn, Shane Scott, C-H-E-Y-N-E. And yeah, I'd love to hear from
1: all of you. to get the special offer. Check out Lawline for the best content for leaders and future leaders in legal.